Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Happy summer, Seattle, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and your commodore of cocktails. Uh, perhaps I'm the major of mezcal today, or not Sunday, the master of mezcal. Um, hey, I hope you're uh, having a great Saturday night. Thanks for joining me right here on 570 KVI. If you ever miss a show, you can go to our uh, website, happyhourradio.net, find uh, a whole host of great shows with fantastic guests and lots of fun, delicious things to imbibe and taste. Uh, we talk about wine, beer, food, cocktails, um, chefs, events, and education from all around the world. And uh, today I've got one of those worldly guys, and it's a real pleasure because apparently he just moved over to uh, Europe, and he's spending some time in the perfect summer twilight of Seattle. Uh, his name is Richard Betts. He's a master sommelier, and he's got um, got a lot of talent. So, Richard Betts, hey, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, what a what a great um, opportunity to have you host you in Seattle. And I think the last time I saw you was in Adelaide. It was in Adelaide. That was that was a long time ago. Actually. That was 2013. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, that was really fun. I, I didn't get a chance to uh, go out into the vineyards area, but I did go to New Zealand, which was really cool. That is cool. and kind of scary trying to drive <laughs> other side of the road. Uh, so you've been all around the world, but uh, let's talk about um, where you're from and how you got into uh, this industry. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, where am I from? Um, that's an evolving question. I grew up in the desert southwest between Tucson, and we were in actually Sonora, Mexico, every weekend for my whole life, growing up. Um, like many kids, left for school, lived in California, worked on Capitol Hill for a minute, did grad school in Montana, or pardon me, uh, Northern Arizona, lived in Italy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, eventually found myself in Colorado, and that was where things really started to take hold and, and grow some roots. And um, worked as the the director of or the wine director at the Little Nell in Aspen, Colorado, for um, eight years, and yes. that's kind of when everything really started to happen. Really did. Yeah. That's an amazing place. And uh, I loved going there. I, I could not, being a sea level guy, my yeah. heart raced all damn week. So when fr- Blind Tasting came around on Friday, I was shot. I'm like, oh, that's the one thing I miss. But um, when was your first drink? Were you throwing keg parties in high school like me? Or did you have a mom and dad that kind of sipped you? Or did you go down to Mexico and learn it all? You know, we did it Hey Mistering. Do you know what that is? No. It's when you and your buddies would like gather your spare change and you're like, you know, 11 years old and nervously have it in some sweaty palm walk up to somebody in the Circle K parking lot and say, hey, mister, will you buy us something to drink? <laughs> you, know, oh. you get turned down, but eventually you find some sympathetic soul who would buy you something. Um, but yeah, that, that's how it first started. Similar path. We called it bootlegging out here. Had to okay. go bootleg. Yep, that's it. How fun is that? Um, you know, wine is a different beast, of course. I think we were drinking Old English 800 back in the day or Colt 45 or something. <laughs> that's what we N- like. Nikki's big mouth. That's right. Yeah. Um, but what about those first sips of wine? First sips of wine really came for me um, in a meaningful way that, that I remember in uh, Italy. So I, I was um, struggling through school, undergrad school in Los Angeles, and just needed a break. 
So um, I moved to Italy, uh, rode my bike a lot, learned to speak Italian, learned to cook. And I, there, you know, it's something really remarkable happened for me. I came to regard wine as a grocery and not a luxury because it's always on the table at lunch, at dinner. The table's not set until there's wine upon it. And look, it probably comes in a pitcher and you might pour it into a tumbler. Um, you know, it's no, no fancy wine glasses, but it's there and it's meaningful and it's part of, it's what makes the whole thing complete. Um, so that was, that was really where it took hold for me in a culturally meaningful way. And of course it feels good when you drink lots of wine too. So, <laughs> so it stuck. What, what year is this? Is this in the 90s or? Uh... 1992 and 1993. Wow, okay. So you yeah. got me beat. My first trip to Italy was 97 in Tuscany and, of course, going all around there in the beautiful uh, summertime mm-hmm. and drinking copious amounts of bottled water and, of course, uh, wine uh, in the little tumblers. And that's what's great about it is that it's it's not a pretentious thing, even though we we can make it very pretentious as sommeliers, advanced sommeliers and master sommeliers such as yourself. Um, but to, just to have that being a regular, like, okay, hey, yeah, pour me some more wine and I like it as a beverage. I don't have to over think it totally yeah totally. um you speak uh say spanish italian italian and you're living now in europe yep I, we uh, now live in amsterdam um my wife and i and we're we feel super excited about it you know we don't have a car you walk everywhere you ride everywhere and lots th- of bikes there huh? more bikes than people uh, that's a fact and we were drawn to it because everyone's happy you know it's a it's a real different thing um that Everyone's very focused on quality of life, you know, meaning being outdoors, going for a walk, you know, eating well, good ingredients. Um, and there's there's no, at least we haven't found it, we don't find the same sort of race for, uh, people right. aren't trying to earn airplane money, you know, they're just trying to enjoy the sunshine. And it's very refreshing. Uh, I don't think I've smiled as much as I have in the last two months ever. And I'm, and I'm a happy guy. I smile a lot. <laughs> but it's amazing. It's contagious. And so this is a big, happy loop happening there. So, I love it. Yeah. Speaking with Richard Betts, who is a master sommelier, and uh, so now he's producing some great uh, distilled spirit from south of the border, but he's also been in the wine business a long time. Uh, my, Are you Dutch? Do you have some Dutch heritage? Uh, allegedly, I'm a quarter Dutch, according to my mom, but who knows where it comes my from. My grandfather's 100% Dutch, and he, wow. you know, I always like to say that that's how I got my height. Right? Uh. <laughs> so I'm pretty tall for a half Chinese guy. I love um, it. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, um, you know, my his father owned a tavern in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, so we've got the whole mix. I but, love you know, that. I think beer's part of that mix. For sure. <laughs> you uh, started studying as a master sommelier. Is this because, I, I mean... Were you a master sommelier when you took the position at Little Nell, or were you studying and just got that job and said, you know what, here's Stucky and here's all these other cats who are there um, Yeah, so, no, I got the job. Uh, Bobby was leaving, and um, so he left. We overlapped by, like, two days, and uh, I got the job, and it was really Jay Fletcher that was... Oh, yeah, Jay. It's great. To me, Jay is, uh, if I had to pick one mentor on the planet, you know, someone who's been very important to me and inspiring to me, it's Jay Fletcher, without a doubt. So I got there. Um, I had take, taken the first exam uh, while I was working as a chef, or, you know, line cook. Wow. Oh, yeah, yeah, flipping eggs, et cetera. Um, so, but perfectly flipped eggs, right? Uh, oh, you got it, absolutely. So I took the first test in, in that capacity, but then I got to Aspen, and I realized the very first day that the guests knew more than I did, and that's not tenable. That doesn't work. So, you know, I mean, I'm their advocate. I'm there to make sure they have a good time. 
And if um, they knew more than me, well, that's a hard thing to do, right? So uh, I did what I always do, which is I put myself in a situation of pressure, and you sign up for an exam. If I want to get fit, I sign up for a race, and and that's inspiring to me. So sign up for this exam, and then I found Jay Fletcher, and Jay's amazing. Um, And after he he gave me a little bit of a ribbing for uh, just because he wanted to, um, took me under his wing and helped me really understand how to think about that test and how to beat it and the test isn't a measure of even really he was a sommelier it's yes you have to know a lot about wine but you have to know a lot about yourself and figure out how to be you know as jay says a warrior for that for that exam um and i liken it to the sat you know when when i took the sat i didn't go reread macbeth i mean i didn't read macbeth in the first place i probably (laughs) probably read the cliff notes you know when you take the sat you read a book meaning entitled how do you beat this test you know how do you beat the sat and it's the same thing with anything and so you just get smart about it and that doesn't mean that you don't learn a lot about wine you definitely learn a lot about wine but having that philosophical shift um as to how to approach the test before you uh, was huge, and, and I thank Jay for that entirely. Uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting Jay Fletcher. He's um, a, a gregarious guy, a little larger in life, and, and somewhat intimidating because he's tall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, he knows a lot, and he can start throwing out names and chateaus. Oh, I had this and that, and like, oh, my goodness, really cool. But to to understand the Master Sommelier um, uh, philosophy, it's really about the guest. And I think we lose that Absolutely. translating to when people see my opinion, like, oh, wow, I just saw the movie. It's really, yeah, but that's one element. But it really, we're supposed to, we're communicators. We are communicators. And, I, you know, I love that you said that. We were just at lunch chatting about stuff and, and uh, you know, be it wine or spirits. I'm I'm always, you know, it's funny. I, I always feel like the 17-year-old in the room, but... But uh, according to the calendar, I'm older than than some folks, um, and so when I meet you know young young psalms or young particularly spirits buyers, and you know I'm always reminded that attitude is the real disability, and and people like it's not about you. This is the service industry. It's not about me. It's not about the superstar sommelier. It's not about the superstar chef. It's not about the superstar mixologist. And if you feel that way, you should just get the hell out of the business. It's about the superstar guest all about the guest so you know i mean they're paying to be there and and that's that's something that we just absolutely can't lose like they're they've had a big day or a hard day or they just went to work or they woke up later they had a hangover and they're coming to your restaurant or your bar to feel better like don't impose yourself like help them feel better (laughs) help them feel better that's that's the whole thing so you know the 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 chef some mixologist person has to get out of the way and and the hospitality person has to come forth and uh, my first gig was Bustin' Tables in 1983, so if that tells you anything about it. I love that. Yeah. Where was that? That was at a little hotel down here. It was called the Alexis Hotel, and it was one of the first four-star properties in Sorrento, and it was a hotel here in Seattle. And, um, you know, my dad knew somebody, and I got a gig, and that's where I learned to find great food, learned how to cook, learned how to taste wine, and learned what fine service was. And I think, you cool know, start there, because McDonald's is going to get you somewhere, but if you start, if you go for the high end at first, that's your foundation. And yep. everything else seems easy after that. I totally agree with you. Yeah, right on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been in the wine game for a while now. Of course, you told me about your calendar. You um, as the director of wine and spirits, or the, that's what my title was at this private club I worked at. But for uh-huh. you, uh, the little Nell, how yep. many bottles did you have there? You know, I got there and we had about 600 selections. Um, and when I left, we had... Oh, about 2,200 selections. I appropriated the dry storage, turned that into a wine cellar. And look, I, I really think I had the best wine job in the history of the, the universe. Um, it just, 
Okay, and Aspen's great, but when people come to Aspen, everyone comes to party. No one's there to work, so they're super happy. Um, <laughs> and it was, you know, this unprecedented period of economic growth. It was just going crazy. And so we bought everything, and everything sold. I mean, really, we would drink wines from the 1800s on the regular. Sell, sell, and drink them, um, which is crazy. So I feel, you know, it was an embarrassment of riches and feel very fortunate to have been there at that time when you just had so much great stuff. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. Looking was really back amazing. looking back and, and knowing what we know now with uh, the, the big billionaire Coke and the billionaire's vinegar, did yep. you have any moments where you look back and go, gosh, maybe, you know, there was something or some wool pulled over? Yeah, you know what? That's um, Once someone shipped us some 59 Mouton, someone that will remain uh, nameless <laughs> on the show, and uh, it was definitely not the real thing, and we just shipped it back. And I think that they, you know, felt like yes, this person's figured this out, or these people figured this out. And um, I don't want to go any further, so they sent us back their money, uh, or back our money. So um, no, yeah, I I think that that was happening, really, as sort of in the middle of what we were doing, and we had bought a lot of old stuff, and I inherited a lot of great old stuff. Um, so I don't really feel like we had anything strange there. Um, That's I, good. I spent a lot of time in New York, and so we were around a lot of those guys. I mean, it definitely oh, right. stood in the corner and smoked something with Rudy Curonon after a, <laughs> after one of those long auction evenings, and and just you know you sit and watch, and you saw a lot of crazy stuff. But um, no, I think at the Nell we were we were largely. Um, Whatever, Select, and, and selective enough to be protected. Sure, and the little Nell has been really the the uh, heartbeat of the Master Sommelier program. I know that we've got five or six, maybe seven or eight masters coming out, or even advanced sommeliers going on. I mean, that's like the the depot of like, hey, you have to stop here for a while and really learn from these great people. And I think that's what's a pleasure. Yeah, well, the the the, I guess the um, common denominator amongst all those people is Jay Fletcher. Ah, that's, that's it. it. That's it. Well, that's and he's a lot. He's he's more than just one man. I mean, Olive is in. I, I miss the guy. I've got to get. Uh, I miss taking advanced. Yeah. <laughs> you should just go there and hang out with I him. I should. I'd like that. Hey, speaking with Richard Betts, Master Sommelier, he's here. He's got two clear bottles of clear liquid. Um, one says mezcal, and the other says tequila. And I'm excited to taste these. We come back from this break. We're going to chat more about uh, Richard Betts's foray into producing wine, and then uh, maybe find uh, some little rocks glasses to sip on. On this beautiful smoky spirit. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Big names, big news. Sean Hannity, weekdays 3 to 6 p.m. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. Hey, Seattle, hope you're having a great summer night. It's uh, Saturday Night Live almost. I've got Richard Betts, Master Sommelier. He's uh, one of the cool cats in the biz, been a, around a lot of places, uh, Italy and New York and now Europe, and he's here in Seattle. Um, hey, Richard, you've been making wine for a while. Let's talk about how you got into that side of the business. Will you pour me another glass of coral rosé while we do that? Oh, absolutely. Look at that. It's gone. Now, that is the, that's the testament of uh, quality, right? Asking for a second <laughs> pour. <laughs> totally. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> 
Let's talk about uh, how you got into the idea of making wine, because I know uh, you had yeah, a label. Totally. Yep, definitely. So uh, had two, sold two, have two more. Um, y- you know, I passed. I was a lucky kid who passed the master sommelier, exa- uh, master sommelier exam on the first try. And They call that a crew cup still? They call it a crew cup still, yeah. Yep. That's totally. what I'm shooting for. Yeah, get it. I love it. like it. Um, so the next day, I didn't wake up happy, and that was it was weird. I woke up like sad or empty and and had this you know Is that was, postpartum no it was it's uh it i found very quickly that um it was very regimented i get very myopic about what i'm doing um and so i would wake up study go to work go to sleep and repeat and did that every single day every day for a year before the advanced exam and i passed the advanced exam and didn't miss a day and woke up the next morning studied worked sleep repeat uh to the 10 min- months leading up to the master sommelier exam and it's that rigor that you know that i need that sort of stuff but that part of you that chews on something and in me it was chewing on that exam prep had nothing to chew on and so that's why i had this you know, profound sense of like emptiness or just like adrift somehow mm-hmm. um so very quickly i'm not one to wallow in anything uh, so I was like, all right, well, there's one thing to read about it, and it's another thing to get dirty, so let's get dirty. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, immediately founded my first wine company with partner Dennis Scholl, um, who's also an, been an awesome mentor and friend to me. His dad wasn't a doctor, right? Not doctor. <laughs> no, okay. not, not that guy. Um, so we started making Grenache in Australia. Um, we added Riesling, added a second Grenache, added Shiraz. And then we're like, well, this, you know, you can get two uh, harvests in a year if you work in northern and southern hemisphere. So then we went to the Rhone and started working with the Schaub family making red and white Hermitage. And then that's at a very different time than Napa Valley, uh, Syrah. So we started making Napa Valley Syrah with Randy Lewis. And so all of a sudden we were making one in three countries on three continents. uh, And it was fantastic. And then we... Um, partnered with some friends, uh, Bobby Stuckey, Stuckey and Lockie, Lachlan McKinnon-Patterson, uh, and founded Scarpetta Wines. Um, so now we added a fourth country. Um, we had a lot going on, and it was amazing. I learned a lot, and we did a lot of things right, and we did a lot of things wrong, and, you know, you get muddy and bloody and all kinds of stuff. Um, and in 2009, I actually sold both of those businesses. We sold Betts & Schultz to a small public company. Uh, which is a very exciting day, and uh, I sold Scarpetta. Uh, Dennis and I sold our interest to a new investment group, um, and then so I had to sit out for a few years. That whole non-compete, oh, non-compete thing, yeah. exactly. Um, but now I'm back in, and and with two wine brands. One is called My Essential. Uh, the my part is is important with that. There's also an essential. As an M Y M Y My Essential. It's born out of the scratch and sniff wine book I did. Anyway. Yes, so I got that from my mom for her uh, for Christmas. Awesome, thank you. Yeah. We appreciate it. And so um, My Essential, we make uh, rosé in Provence, and we make um, some very affordable Cabernet and Sauvignon Blanc in California. That's very exciting. And then with my wife, uh, Carla. We have a really cool project um, where we actually just bought what may be one of the oldest living vineyards on planet Earth, planted sometime between 1850 and 1880 in pure sand in the Bros Valley, um, making Grenache. Wow. It's, it's called an approach to relaxation. Uh, the red wine's called Suset, and uh, I, I couldn't be more excited about it. 
Very cool. Yeah. And so when it comes to Provence Rosé, will you be down there in September? Or yep. Do you, yep. Yeah. All yep. right. I'll yep. be there. I'm going to look you up. Let's connect. Please do. It's so do. fun. So um, interesting enough, we have a, a gentleman named by the, by the name of Charles Smith here in Washington, mm-hmm. and he recently sold some of his little wine projects to a, a publicly company. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, he said he got a check then and, and told me he was on the show. He goes, yeah, it was $120,400,000. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, I didn't get a check like that. No. <laughs> I'm happy for Charles, though. Oh, I know. And uh, speaking about Washington wine, you you, uh, you seem to have an affinity, obviously, for the Barossa Valley and, and mm-hmm. for, for Rhone-style wines, such as Grenache yeah. and grapes. Um, have you had much pleasure here or, or experience good experiences here in Washington State? You know, I have, absolutely. And... Um, yeah, I also have a penchant for Semillon, so mm. I, I do like Greg Delisle's white wine a lot, um, and I'm also a big fan of Gramercy Cellars. I think Gramercy Cellars, to me, is doing you know the best work here. Right on. Yeah. Well, that's Greg Harrington, yeah. fellow Master Sommelier, and uh, he's uh, gallivanting around. I know we've had the, just the advanced course recently, mm-hmm. and um, uh, of course we have the Master uh, Theory coming up. This month as well. Will you be yeah, there? I won't be there. All right. No, I'm going to be in Amsterdam. You're going to be in Amsterdam. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you we've done wine, and then you said there was just still a little bit of peace missing in that that heart of yours, where you said I got to do, I got to distill something. Well, you know that's a good question. Um, so, I'm living in Aspen, working as a sommelier, full time job. 2003, we found Beth and Scholl. 2006, we found Scarpetta, and I love the nightlife. Aspen's got a great nightlife. I look at the back bar and I look at all that cool booze and think, wow, it's all really interesting, but only the agave spirits are uppers. They're the on-ramp. They're the party. You know, I like whiskey and it's it's interesting, but, you know, give me a glass and I'm just like in the corner, passed out, ready to sleep. And it's like, it's oh. that's not that fun. I'm, I, I like to be up. <laughs> I like to party. It's like, and and so um, I'm drawn to the, the agave spirits and, you know, there was probably some sort of seed planted way back when drinking Bacanora in Sonora as a kid. But um, I thought very, you know, naively like, oh, I'm just going to go start tequila company. I'm making all this wine. How hard could it be? Well, it turns out it's really, really hard. I was going to say, would there be like a Mexican mafia down there saying you can't get in the biz yet? Yet, oh uh, well, thankfully no, that doesn't happen. But um, what the first big big hurdle was, I went to Tequila and was immediately depressed because it's a big it's a big marketing machine. And, oh, absolutely. And Tequila is not the true agave spirit of Mexico; it's mezcal. But Tequila would have you, you know, believe that it's all you know, tradition, the patrimony. Yeah, right. tradition. It's a bunch of BS. <laughs> so if, I mean it. I mean, and there are still some some good tequilas made, but ninety nine point nine percent of them are not special. Huge, like at distilleries. all distilleries. Totally. Yeah, and as a it. as a wine guy that prizes you know this idea of terroir, that a beverage should reflect a people, a place, a geology, geography, history, cuisine, all this stuff. Tequila didn't do that. And I was like, well, listen, if no one else is going to drink what I make, I have to drink it all. And I can do that. But oh. with that, I'm going to make what I like. <laughs> yeah, full stop. So we left. Um, and we went all over Mexico and drank Ricea and drank Bacanora and drank Sotol. And we drank Mezcal from Durango. And only when we got to Oaxaca did we feel like, okay, this is the place. This is where I want to be. And this is what I want to do. Because it had all of that. Now, go back 11 years, almost 12 years, 2006. And imagine mezcal, and you say it to somebody. And I so I told my friends like, "Hey, I'm I'm going to make mezcal." And they're like, "You're going to go to jail, Richard." Like, Is that like grappa? That, that experience? They're what? like, "Mescaline's illegal." And it's like, "No, it's not mescaline. <laughs> it's mezcal." And they're like, "Oh yeah, with the worm." And you're like, "No, no, no. Good mezcal doesn't have a Those worm gusanos. in it." Yeah, it's terrible. It's garbage. Uh, yeah, yeah, it no, is. it's horrible. So, 
um, it was definitely it's been a uphill road, but um, but that's it's good. I mean, you know, now here we are, uh, eleven change years later, and it now it looks kind of smart. Uh, wow. That's not to say it hasn't been really really difficult, but at the same time, we've learned a lot, you know, and and. Um, you know, very long story made short is I've gone from figuring out how to make the stuff to um, gradually improving small things with the two people we're distilling with along the way falling completely in love with Oaxaca and then recognizing that mezcal production any spirit production is really really dirty it's horrible for the environment and then trying mm. to figure out well how do we fix this mm. so I'm super proud to say um, you know in March we turned the key on a brand new distillery that we built that we, may be the environmentally most conscious distillery on the planet um, and so we're making mezcal in a way that's, that's conscientious of, of the full cycle so rain comes from the sky electricity comes from the sun we set the horse free there's no animals used here everything's done organically naturally and the big piece is we've taken the waste and we're making A, organic compost, B, adobe bricks for public housing works, and C, we're working on figuring out how to use the waste to fire the stills. It's This is all, of, you know, I'm giving this to you in the, in the short strokes, but it's really, really exciting. Well, let's talk about the name of this project because I'm, I'm totally smitten. Oh, that's a good idea. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's called Sombra, which Sombra. means the shadow. The shadow, yeah. huh? Yeah, and it you know, has a, cu- a couple meanings. The first is, you know, mezcal is very much lived in the shadow of tequila, but more importantly, you know, I think about how I got into this in the first place, and I believe that everybody has a dark side. I know you do. I do. Everybody, <sighs> yeah, everyone listening, you all have your dark side. You should channel that and enjoy it. And uh, and that led me to make mezcal in the first place. Fantastic. Uh, but, of course, you have a tequila next to it. We do, yeah. So... With that, I had made um, a whole bunch of wine, and you know, I'd come to like sell you wine, and I have to talk about eleven different things. That's just dilutive. So, I was like, okay, we're going to make mezcal, and we're going to make one thing. We want to be the very, very best at it, and we want to make it the most accessible. Like, how do we share with so many people? All right. Well, when we come back from this break, um, I'm going to partake in some of this uh, dark side of my life, and perhaps a little bit of the dark side of yours, too. With Richard Betts, Master Sommelier, he's actually now a master distiller. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local, weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, Seattle, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. We're about to get happy. I've got uh, Master Sommelier Richard Betts, also a master distiller. He's got a company that produces mezcal and a little bit of tequila. It's called Sombra, which means uh, the dark side or the shadow. And uh, he poured a little in my glass. This is really fragrant. Richard, let's talk about the production of mezcal. Yeah, so mezcal is really the indigenous agave spirit of Mexico. The first agave spirit. It's the true agave spirit. It's what Mexicans drink. Um, despite <laughs> what the tequila guys would tell you. And, and in fact, the old tequila bottles didn't say tequila. They said vino de mezcal. True. And vino, so, huh? Vino de mezcal. Wow. Yeah, exactly. And so they used to, this, uh, you know, 
they say all tequila is mezcal, but not all mezcal is tequila. And I say, thank goodness, because most tequila is made like vodka, and that's totally uninteresting to me. So um, if you want if you want the real thing, you go back and you find the real thing, and that is mezcal. And so you work with heritage varieties of agave, depending on who you ask. It's 28 or 31. Um, and importantly, you, you know... You mean 28 being a clone or a... Uh, Good question. Twenty eight varieties, twenty eight thirty one varieties. Okay. Like everyone, you know, lots of different numbers. But um, the point is, is that you, you're not bound to just use uh, Weber Blue, which is what they make tequila from. Um, that's a questionable choice and probably a discussion for another day. But um, you can use any of these different varieties. And uh, importantly, um, you know, for those of you listening, you can't ferment a ball of starch, which is what an agave plant is. You have to turn it to a fermentable sugar if you're going to make booze, which is our whole aim here. <laughs> so you do that principally with heat. And uh, historically, you know, I won't speak to what's... Kind of a malting process for the agave, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so you've, you've harvested the pina of this plant that took anywhere from 25 to 7 years, uh, 7 years to 25 years to, to mature um, and prepped it and, and cut it all up. And you've built a fire in the ground, literally in a rock-lined pit. Uh, from whatever wood you so choose, um, and you put the agave in there, and they ro- and bury it. Under- what are the common forms of wood, or the sources for? You know, fuel? mesquite's very common. Mm-hmm. I don't like mesquite because it's very sappy. Mm. Therefore, it's very smoky. Yeah, and all you taste is the smoke. Right. And if you're you know new to mezcal and, and or you're just learning about mezcal, I think that you know the agave plant has so much to say. Why do we want to cover it up with just smoke? Smoke is a part, but it's not the whole. Um, and I think that's key. So um, we use a wood called Encino, burns cleaner and hotter, um, and also doesn't produce you know, all this excessive smoke. So yes, it has the some tar, smoky yeah. qualities, but it also allows the plant to shine through, and that's really important, right? This back part of the terroir and part of the place, so it's reflective of that. Right. And they say agave can be sweet and have fruity notes and have ac- acidity. And- it has plenty of acidity. It's got tons of it, actually. Um and it can be fruity and exotic, and, and it's um, it's fantastic. So you uh, change... You- uh, turn the starches into sugars in the pit, and then yep. you pull this out and throw it into a mash tun, or tell us. No, then you have to grind it up, right? Uh-huh. So there's still, you know, an agave pina. We use espadine. Espadine is the common type of agave. It's actually the genetic parent of blue. That's the common type of agave used to produce, you know, the most mezcal that you see around. And so um, once you know, a pina will be sixty to eighty kilograms. So multiply by two point two to get to pounds. That's heavy. <laughs> Um, so you chop them in quarters maybe when you roast them, but there's, they still have to be ground now before you can actually ferment them. And so you, you grind them traditionally in a horse-turned mill. Oh, so that's you, right. So yeah. you have this gigantic wood stone that would crush you if you got under it. Um, and, you know, traditionally horse turns it. I'm an animal lover, I, you know, uh, unapologetic animal lover. I think that's a lousy life for a horse. So we set the horse free. We turn the, the mill with uh, solar They never get that carrot, do they? No, they never get that carrot. They actually don't. It's, it's not very nice. Um, so we don't we don't play like that. We actually are much nicer to the animals and and turn the stone with electricity uh, from the sun. But you grind it up, then you shovel it into a barrel. You add a little bit of water, and then the whole thing ferments, you know, naturally with native yeast for about ten ten days plus or minus. And then What's you, the alcohol by, by that point? Exactly, you've made basically agave beer. And it's okay. on the solid, so it's like full of all the plant material and everything. But you know, it's four and a half or five percent. And then you've got to distill the stuff. And then it comes out of the still after the second run through. This is a regular pot still? Copper pot still, Uh exactly. Just like in uh, single malt scotch, what have you. And so... um, Distilled once? 
Twice. Twice. Yeah, so it comes out about 35%. You stick it back in, comes out between 60 and 65%. Um, you know, generally, we hit you know, 59 to 61. That t- tends to be the sweet spot. Um, and that's referring to the co- alcoholic content. Alcoholic content, yeah. exactly. So uh, you think about that, and um, you, something that went in at 5% is now you've reduced it down to 60%. That's that's the essence of what distillation is, right? Yes. And so and that's how you make the stuff. Importantly, when it comes off the still, it has a lot to say. It is full of flavor. And so if you think about it, let's just say it's 60%. Well, that means 40% of what's in that glass is actually something else. Right. That's all the flavor. That's all the interesting stuff. And so um, it has a lot of flavor and has so much personality that we don't age it in oak. And if you think about, you know, those of you listening, if you ever taste bourbon without the, the oak, you know, white dog or, or whatever you want to call white lightning, it doesn't taste like much. It just feels hot, uh, right? And you can corny. say, oh, yeah, maybe it's a little sweeter because it's corn. Maybe it's a little softer because it's wheat. But those differences are super subtle. And you put that next to a cognac, which tastes like nothing because that's distilled grape juice. Those two spirits need oak. Right. So bourbon is essentially a tincture of American oak and cognac is a tincture of French oak. Limousin. Yeah. And so that's why they end up tasting like a thing. But mezcal already tastes like a thing. And it took seven years to grow that plant. So why would I cover it up with oak and make it taste like something that came from a cereal grain that you can grow twice a year in in the world? So. Um, we bottle it and and drink it as is done traditionally in Mexico, which is just as silver. And I see that you have the word uh, hoven or or joven if you were speaking Inuit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, but hoven is is youthful, right? It means young. Or... Exactly. Yeah. And so that's part of the the regulations. You have to label it as either hoven, reposado, or añejo. So hoven can be the same thing as blanco. Can be the same thing as plata. Um, and so. Yeah, that's that's just what we're required. So I'm tasting this spirit. Um, it has a hint of fire. Um, there's just a little pepperiness on the palate. Exactly. That um, comes from the you get some of that. There's sort of a melon note in here that's got a touch of that smoke. Uh, and it, it has a bit of campfire or camp fur maybe. But um, it's it's is this 80 percent or 80 proof, I mean, or is this a little hotter? So um, it's not hotter, but it's higher. Higher. Yes. That's what I meant. I mean, yeah. higher. No, I absolutely. I, I make this distinction all day, so I'm sensitive to it. Uh, so this is actually 90 proof. Yeah. And this is, a, this is another good thing to think about if you're, if you're listening is like, why is any spirit 80 proof? Why? There's no- Taxes. That's it. That's the only reason. Woo-hoo! Yeah. So because the producer doesn't want to spend the money, you know, I, we pay a gigantic bill every time we cross the border with a truckload of this stuff. And the higher the alcohol, the higher the tax. Right. So when you're shopping for spirits and you see an 80-proof spirit, it's not because it tastes best there. It's because that's where it costs the least to make, which to me is just complete nonsense. And remember, I said I'm going to drink all this if you're not going to drink it with me, so I might as well make it taste great. So when the case of mezcal... We feel like 90 proof is the place to do that. Awesome. Now, I'm concerned because you, you dilute these these uh, spirits, these distillations with water. Yep. And they say that, you know, it's, it's the water in Mexico. I mean, obviously, you got that old <laughs> Mexican god, Aztec god or whatever. Yep. Do you filter the water? Is it a natural aquifer? How does no, it work? Uh, well, you know, we use what's, um, what's actually standard in the distillation industry. And so it's a distilled water. Got it. Okay. So yep. it is pure, too. All right. Um, we've got just a couple more moments on this break uh, before the next break but let's talk about this astral and astral uh, that means star or from the stars from, from the, the heavens, stars yeah. yeah so astral um when once somber was up and and working 
um, and working well, I thought, okay, what else are we going to do? And remember, I was guilty of doing too much before with the wine, like, you know, all these different things. <laughs> Me too. And so I wanted to keep the the, the focus uh, really myopic with mezcal and let sombra be sombra. But I was reading a book uh, simply called Tequila. Um, that was super interesting and detailed. They were just bemoaning how modern tequila doesn't resemble what tequila once was. Um, you know, everything we've been talking about. And um, you know, Anne Maria, one of the co-authors, uh, talked about how this is this is how it used to look. And I was like, well, that's so cool. Let's make that. And that's that's why um, we started Astral. And we just make you know we don't make a whole lot, um, but we make this really with a nod to what tequila must have looked like in the late 1800s. Wow. Yeah. And so there are really principally f- uh, four ingredients that we can talk about whenever. Okay. Well, I'm curious. You know, is there a a place? Is there a uh, agave co-op where that you can buy agave, or a, is there an Amazon.com for agave? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if only it worked that way. No, agave prices are actually at an all-time high, and and uh, and no. But you you're hedging at the first the first piece, which is where the agave come from. And, you know, there's highlands and lowlands. Yes. Um, we don't ever feel like we have to subscribe to to that sort of thing or you know to any sort of convention. So we're in essentially the Netherlands, and I don't mean where I live. Mm-hmm. We're we're in a tiny, um, mountainous organic estate grown for us on the Nayarit state border. So this is almost as far west as you can go in Jalisco, way past uh, the lowlands, um, where it's just surrounded by woodland. And topography is the key. So when it, when a plant grows on a on a slope, it struggles, and when it struggles, it has more flavor. I love it. Speaking yeah. a lot of flavor, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait for this. <laughs> I can't wait for the taste. Of this astral tequila and the sombra mezcal is absolutely delicious. Here with Richard Betts. So stick around, folks. We got more on Happy Hour Radio. Start your day the right way. John Carlson, live and local, 6 to 10 a.m., Talk Radio 570, KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks. Hey, welcome to segment four. Hope you got uh, something tasty before you. I've got uh, a handsome Richard Betts, Master Sommelier. We just tasted his Sombra Mezcal, and now we're into the From the Stars, the Astral Tequila. Uh, Richard, um, are these products available in Seattle? They are. Okay. Yep. Esquin Wine and Spirits would probably have them down to 4th Avenue. Yep. Or you can ask your favorite shop and they can order it for you. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Um, we were talking about tequila and it's different from mezcal, but you wanted to make a tequila that had authenticity because you you had some reference. Exactly. So we're, we're really looking at the way it was made in the late 1800s before there was legislation for industry and not for artistry. So four Good big one. ingredients. Like Thank you. Um, first, it's topography, as we spoke about. You put a, a plant on a slope, it struggles, it's going to give you more flavor. The second is do a real roast, right? Just like mezcal, we were talking about you have to convert a starch to a sugar. Nowadays, it's done um, either in an autoclave. Which Steaming. Is yeah, like a rice cooker. Um, or even worse, with a diffuser, which is something totally gross that I don't understand, but I know it has no place in tequila, but it's the way it happens. <laughs> So we do a real roast in a volcanic rock oven. So that's important. That contributes flavor. And the next part is ferment on the solids. And that's that's very uncommon. So they just basically juice the plant and just ferment the juice. Sure. But all the flavor yes. is in the solids. So we throw it all together. It makes a gigantic mess, but it's worth it. Um, so it, we ferment again with indigenous yeast. So it takes 10 times as long to ferment 
but that gives you 10 times the amount of time to extract from is these there solids. Is a, a sweet season time? Is, I mean, if you did this in, I, I imagine there, it's warm down there a lot. It's, but, but now it's the rainy season. Okay. So, so particularly you, in Oaxaca, it's been raining like nonstop. So that, that makes it harder. But you don't uh, but, want your agave to be full swell with with water at that point, or do no, you? No, not really. Okay. You know, it doesn't it doesn't matter as much as it does with grapes because um, they're still a succulent, but they don't take up that much more, right? It, but the hard part is remember we're out in the middle of nowhere, and so getting a truck out there to to get these things on a muddy dirt road is that's that's the real issue. Oh right, yeah. So with a straw, uh, you ferment on the solids, but then importantly, we distill to a more historic proof, which is ninety two proof. You know, way back when Eridura used to make a really delicious 92 proof. I don't believe they make it anymore. Um, so you've got real topography. You've got real flavor. You do a real roast. That gives you real flavor. You ferment on the solids. That gives you real flavor. And then alcohol carries flavor. So let's celebrate it. And so at 92 proof, it carries viscosity. It carries body. It carries personality. It carries an impression of sweetness, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um, I, I mean, I love this stuff. Uh, I just took a sip. I, I'm surprised how smooth it is, and yet it has body, um, yep. and it has a little more weight than a typical Blanco tequila, which I do dig, and, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Eridura or um, some even salsa, but a blue agave. But this this definitely has more flavor, and I'm really surprised by it because we rarely get a higher-proof tequila. Yes, it's and true. To, to know that, because a lot of times, um, sometimes the alcohol will, will match with tannin and acidity and, and make things kind of disjointed. But this is really smooth. Thank you. But it has a long finish. Um, it's a little warm, but I like that because it's, uh, you know, it's a neat, nice little evening. And it's a sipper. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hate to, I would I shouldn't should say hate to mix it because I love <laughs> I would love for you to mix it. <laughs> Thank Just you go crazy. Much. Drink it however you like. I don't care. <laughs> oh, so fun. So what's the price point? These are probably in that 65 range for the Mezcal. The Mezcal, um, it's... We, you know, Washington... Mid-30s. Th- mid oh, really? And, the, Sweet. And Astral's mid-40s. Okay. Love it. Well, that's a deal. Um, website. I appreciate that. Uh, sombramezcal.com and astraldequila.com. Sombra, that's S-O-M-B-R-A, sombramezcal.com and astral, A-S-T-R-A-L, tequila.com. Uh, reverse this, tequilaastral.com. Oh, tequila astral, that's right, because it's... I don't know how that yeah. works. What a treat. Um, so great to see you. Uh, a pleasure you. to chat and connect and to uh, to talk about these. Do you have a favorite cocktail that you might uh, imbibe or share with these uh, Margarita. Listeners? I love the smoky margarita. Me too. So at home, um, and you know, this sounds silly, but uh, this is what I do. It's an ounce of Sombra. Mm-hmm. It's an ounce of Astral. It's three-quarter ounces of fresh lime. Mm-hmm. And guys listening, you actually got to get the proportions right. Um, and then it's half an ounce of agave nectar, agave syrup. Oh, right. And I, sweet. I shake the heck out of it and double strain it, and it's it. Wow. It's really good. I love it. And, and it, what's great about having that um, agave syrup is that it's sweet, but it's a good kind of sweetness. It's the and glycemic it really, index. It really links up with the mezcal, too. They love each other, and it just makes it super fruity. It's just a love fest. Mm-hmm. It's a triangle love fest. I love it. Richard Betts, Master Sommelier, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me. Appreciate oh, it. What a treat, folks. Um, I, I'm trying some mezcal. I've got a little tequila here, and I'm ready for a margarita. It's Saturday night. Hey, uh, you have a chance tomorrow to meet me over in in West Seattle. It's uh, the Psalm Summit. It's this weekend, folks. Uh, 
International Wine and Spirits Symposium. There are 25 different uh, seminars and five different assembly lectures. We're going to taste wines from South Africa, Bordeaux, New Zealand, Napa, Washington, Portugal, Spain, uh, even some cognac and some bourbon. So check it out, SomSummit.com. It's your last chance. Uh, the world of wine is coming to Seattle. I hope to see you there. Hey, folks, uh, remember, if you're out and about and uh, enjoying yourself, remember life is always better with the designated driver. Cheers! Cheers!